Funding for Smart Talk is provided by Capital Blue Cross. For 80 years, Capital Blue Cross has offered products that provide peace of mind and promote good health. Focused on creating a healthier future for our communities through innovations like its Capital Blue Health and Wellness Centers that provide in-person service and inspire healthy living. Capital Blue Cross is behind you for whatever lies ahead. More information is at capbluecross.com. Capital Blue Cross. Live fearless. Smart Talk is also supported by UPMC Pinnacle, who has offered transapical mitral valve repair procedures for more than three years and currently serves as a trial site for over 50 clinical trials. Information at upmcpinnacle.com slash myheart. Welcome to Smart Talk. I'm Scott Lamar. October is Breast Cancer Awareness Month, an annual campaign to raise awareness of breast cancer risk, the value of screening and early detection, and treatment options available to women and men who are diagnosed with one of the many forms of breast cancer. Even though the number of breast cancer diagnoses are down over the last 15 years, 250,000 women and men will be diagnosed with breast cancer this year and 41,000 will die. To discuss breast cancer today, our guest, Pat Halpin-Murphy, is president and founder of the Pennsylvania Coalition Against Breast Cancer. Pat, welcome back to the program. Thank you. Also, Lee Hurst, founder and president of the Feel Your Boobies Foundation. Lee Hurst, good to see you again. Good morning. And Danielle Levitan is the Senior Community Development Manager, MSABC Mega Events, the Northeast Region with the American Cancer Society. Danielle Levitan, thank you for being with us today. Thank you. If you have a question or a comment, uh, we're having a conversation about something that has an impact on a lot of people today. We would like to hear from you, maybe a story to tell, maybe a question. One 1-800-729-7532 or send an email to smarttalk at witf.org. Breast Cancer Awareness Month has been successful so far as people knowing when they see a pink ribbon or uh, hear people talking about the breast cancer that they know it's for this month and it's designated at this month for an awareness. Plus the fact that so many people have been diagnosed or so many people know someone who has been diagnosed. But Pat, let me start with you. What aren't they aware of? What uh, aren't most people aware of when it comes to breast cancer? Well, that's a great, great question, Scott. There are a number of things. Uh, one is, of course, they I believe they are aware that mammograms are necessary every year starting at age 40. But what I think they may not be aware of is that there's a new kind of mammogram called 3D or three-dimensional mammogram. Uh, it's only been out for a few years, like five years, and it's about 20-some percent better at detecting a tumor and over 20% better at not having false positives, or as women call them, callbacks. You know, when you're sitting there in your hospital gown, and they say, oh, we just want to get one more picture. Mm -hmm. So 3D mammograms are much, much better. They're the wave of the future, and they're, you can get them right now. They may also be aware of that, but what I'm finding they're not aware of is that in the state of Pennsylvania, if you're insured under Pennsylvania law, that that 3D mammogram is free to the woman, free, no cost, no deductible, uh, no copay. And so you can get a better mammogram and it's uh, without a cost if you're insured under Pennsylvania law. And that includes if you have Medicaid or if you have Medicare, which is federal. And so the better mammogram is the 3D mammogram, and it's, it's free. And you, it's a good thing that you do bring that up for people to be aware of because that is not the case in all states. No. In fact, Pennsylvania is the first state in the nation to cover mammograms at no cost to the women, and that's thanks to Governor Tom Wolf. Uh, we had legislation in the 90s that said no cost to women for mammograms. But we found that when 3D mammograms came along, that women were being charged anywhere from 50 to $600 for that better 3D mammogram. And so we went to the insurance commissioner and ultimately the governor and pointed this out. And he issued a policy statement which was that Pennsylvania will be the first state in the nation 
to cover 3D mammograms at no cost to the insured woman. So it's wonderful news, and I would encourage women uh, to get that mammogram. And if they'd like to know whether it's available to them in their area, we have all of that information on our website. They can um, type into the website, although type isn't a word anymore. <laughs> it's like dial. I, I, I understood what you meant, but, but we're showing our age when we say that. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And um, we have on, you type in your, uh, your zip code, and we will show you all of the facilities around you. Uh, who may have uh, 3D mammograms and available. we'll have a link to all your organizations on our website, WITF.org. So, Danielle, I'll ask you the same question. Okay. W- what do you uh, find that uh, many people aren't aware of when it comes to breast cancer? Well, actually, um, one of the things that the American Cancer Society has done a, a campaign in the last uh, few years has called been called Real Men Wear Pink, mm-hmm. um, and that's actually how you and I got connected, was a, a, a lovely, amazing man. Robert Duffield, who he was a former coworker, right? right yeah. Who uh, connected me to you, and um, Robert is one of our real men wear pink candidates. And actually, so one of the things that I don't think a lot of people are aware of, including myself, until I till in the last year or two, is that men can get breast cancer. Mm-hmm. There's about 2,600 cases per year of men being diagnosed. So we're hoping that through this fun and friendly um, competition, um, fundraising competition within the men, um, that that we bring more awareness and conversation to to uh, to that, to that piece, the, the 2,600 cases per year. And, you know, I know that uh, there have been a number of campaigns over the years that were targeting men, not necessarily to get checked themselves, but to care about their mothers, care about their mm-hmm. girlfriends, care about their wives, care about their daughters. When I say care, maybe that's not the right word, but to be thinking about them and encourage uh, uh, the, the women in their, in their lives to, uh, you know, that early detection to get checked and, and all that. Lee, you have kind of a unique perspective from this when we're talking about what people aren't aware of, uh, in that uh, Fill Your Boobies is uh, a foundation that targets younger women. Um, when we get to talking about risk factors, and maybe you heard me mention in the introduction, one of the risk factors is age. But you're a perfect example of how uh, you know someone who doesn't have to be older can develop breast cancer. That's right. I think, uh, you know, with Feel Your Boobies, our main focus and mission is that education um, provided to women who are under 40 because that population often doesn't think they're at risk. Um, And while it's not the highest percentage of women that are diagnosed, breast cancer actually is the leading cause of cancer from deaths. Uh, cause of cancer deaths in women under 35. So it can be quite aggressive. And for women who are of that age and not formally screened, knowing your own body is really important. Um, A lot of women think that because their mothers didn't have breast cancer that they're not at risk. And the vast majority of women diagnosed with breast cancer don't have a family history. So our main focus is finding um, innovative, creative ways to getting that younger population's attention to get a healthy habit started at a young age. So as the uh, as they age and their body changes, they're already familiar with what their healthy body feels like. So that if a change occurs, they can bring it to the doctor's attention right away. So as you mentioned, that population isn't often diagnosed, but when they are, it can be aggressive, and they're not being screened otherwise for the disease. So self awareness is so important. But with age, your risk increases, and so that habit becomes even more important in combination with mammograms as they get older to ensure that they're covering all their bases. Now, as I said, you are an example of this. Tell us your story. I mean, you were young when you were diagnosed, but it, it didn't happen, like, right away. No. I. Um, so when I was finally diagnosed, I was 33, um, but at the time when I initially found my lump, I was probably 30 or 31. Um, and I wasn't doing an, like a traditional self-breast exam where you're following some sort of pattern um, to examine your breast. I was really just familiar with the way my body felt through taking a shower, getting dressed. And so when I would go for my annual exams um, and, and let the doctors examine my breast, I would kind of wait and see if they felt it. Um, and they didn't. And so I would have to place their hand directly on the lump and say, this just feels a little different to me. Um, And it was dismissed for a couple years. And honestly, I thought it was fine, too. I figured it was just nothing. Having no family history, all the things I mentioned, I just figured I wasn't at risk either. I was a marathon runner, very health conscious. But 
Fast forward to when I was officially diagnosed at age 33, I realized I just never thought about breast cancer at all. And I wondered why, because I was educated and um, health conscious in general. And so I felt like the language and the messaging that was used for that population just always felt older. And so our education programs that target college campuses nationally try to use methods, messaging, um, visual imagery that is more in line with that population so it gets through. Mm -hmm. uh, Pat, w at what age were you diagnosed? I was 46. You were 46. And um, I uh, felt a lump. I did have my yearly mammograms, and I felt a lump, and um, I went for a, a mammogram. And um, really, they said there was nothing there, and I said, well, I really think there is. And uh, I persisted and got an ultrasound, and finally they said yes, and it's stage three. So um, it had been missed, and it had been missed largely because I have what are known as dense breasts. And um, I didn't know it, and no one told me that. Um, but if you have dense breasts, the density appears white on a mammogram and masks or hides uh, the tumor so you can be diagnosed later. Uh, had I known I had dense breasts, I would have uh, been more aggressive and asked for an ultrasound or an MRI each time, but I didn't know that information. And so a few years ago, uh, we approached uh, Senator Bob Mensch in the Pennsylvania legislature because I was hearing of so many women who were getting their mammograms um, and then they were being diagnosed at a later, um, uh, more difficult-to-treat stage because there are only four stages. And um, I thought that women should be informed if they had dense breasts when they got their mammogram. And so uh, Senator Mintz uh, introduced legislation requiring the mammography centers to inform women each time they have a mammogram, whether or not they have dense breasts. And if so, uh, they may be a, a bit more aggressive in how they want to um, investigate that. And that legislature pa legislation passed. Now, every woman in the state who gets a mammogram gets a letter afterwards telling her whether or not she has dense breasts. Um, you know, I have to admit that I thought of this question when you were uh, talking earlier about the 3D mm -hmm. mammogram. Does it make it, does a 3D mammogram help detect? Now, you mentioned that there's 20% more accurate, 20% uh, fewer uh, false positives, but with dense breast, does the 3D mammogram help in diagnosis at all? Absolutely. It does. Absolutely. Okay. Because the 3D mammogram is three-dimensional, and it takes dozens and dozens of um, sliced photos of your breast. So um, you can go into more depth, and uh, it's just much better for finding that, that tumor. And that's why we encourage women um, if they have a choice of 2D mammograms or 3D, to ask for 3D. And we're um, suggesting to them uh, that when women call to make an appointment for their yearly mammogram, that they ask for a 3D mammogram. Mm -hmm. And in this state, we've done a survey of every single mammography facility in Pennsylvania, and there are like 364 of them. And we got responses from 363. So we know. I won't it, ask you who the one was. <laughs> I won't tell. I won't tell. <laughs> we needed a security clearance to even talk to them, so uh, I, I left them off the hook. I'm hoping they're doing the right thing. Um, and of those, uh, 213 do at this moment have 3D mammography available at their centers. And if they check out our website, they can find out if a woman can find out if the mammography center that, that they use has 3D. Okay. And they should be asking for that. I think that's the, the asking part is so important because you may go to a health system that has multiple imaging locations, and some of those locations have 3D, and some of them don't. So simply calling and saying, I'm, I'm scheduling my mammogram, and assuming that because somewhere in their system they offer 3D, that everywhere is 3D is not the case. And I'm Actually, that happened to me, and you would think that I would be proactive in knowing that, but you do really have to ask to be 
scheduled at a facility that has the 3D. That's very important. Does breast size matter when it comes to uh, diagnosis of breast cancer? Not really. Density is a factor, but density and size are not related. Okay. All right. But you density know, and age is, is directly correlated. I think you would agree with that. that and that's sometimes why the mammograms aren't suggested until age 40, because in your 30s and 20s, your breasts are still very dense. And until you have children and breastfeed and so forth, things can change. But you can still have dense breasts, as I do, and Pat mentioned, even at an older age, but when you're younger, the density is even higher. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. Smart Talk is supported by Capital Blue Cross, providing health care coverage accepted by doctors and specialists in all 50 states. More information is available at capbluecross.com. Capital Blue Cross, live fearless. Smart Talk is also supported by UPMC Pinnacle. Its 11 principal investigators and 12 nurse coordinators conduct research efforts to advance cardiovascular medicine. Information at upmcpinnacle.com slash myheart. Welcome back to Smart Talk. We are talking about breast cancer. October is Breast Cancer Awareness Month. Jumping around today, a lot of different topics, a lot of different things to talk about. Our guest, Danielle Levitan, who is with the American Cancer Society, Lee Hurst with the Feel Your Boobies Foundation, and Pat Halpin-Murphy with the Pennsylvania Coalition. I was about to say Pennsylvania Coalition Against Breast Cancer. It's Pennsylvania Breast Cancer Coalition. If you have a question or a comment, give us a call. 1-800-729-7532 is the number to call. If you have uh, a question or a comment, you could leave. You could leave it on WITS Facebook page. You can also send it to our email address, uh, smarttalk at witf.org. On Twitter, we are at smarttalkwitf. Again, that phone number one eight hundred seven two nine seven five three two. Danielle, you were kind enough to send me the, the latest information from uh, the American Cancer Society. Uh, just fresh off the presses, if you will, uh, talking about the cancer deaths. A uh, couple questions about that. Uh, number one, now, th- this information did not include diagnosis. Mm-hmm. That actually, that the, the number of diagnoses are way down compared to what they were in, say, the year 2000. That's one thing. But let's talk about the information you sent me talked about uh, uh, or focused on the number of breast cancer deaths down 39 percent between 1989 and 2015. Do we know why? You know, uh, the report was so literally fresh or hot off the press. I have not had a chance to to dig deep into it. But um, what I would just as a person working and breathing in this realm, in this space, um, people are talking about it, just like we're sitting here talking about it. And, and, you know, you're talking about it. People are being their own advocates, like you both had said about your bodies and talking to your doctors. And so so we as as society are being more active and more and advocates for ourselves um, and asking more questions. And we should be asking more questions, as even I've learned listening to you talk when you were just talking about the 3D mammogram. Like when that is my time to go, I will remember this conversation and I will know to to ask my doctor those questions. So I, I, I have to uh, assume that the education and the conversation and organizations like all three of ours, while we're so different, we're all in the same you know fight together, which is to help women and men. Um, who are going through this? So, so I would have to say that the education is probably a education big part of that. is a big part of the sure, but treatment and uh, you know early detection, I, early diagnosis. Right. Yeah. Yes, Go and the, I think all of the things that Pat has been talking about in terms of the improvement um, of mammography into 3D. Um, I know just since I was diagnosed 13 years ago, there's very granular testing to be done. Um, with regard to your tumor makeup, and so they can be even more precise in terms of the chemotherapy that they administer to women um, related to the genetic makeup of that tumor, and certainly genetic testing. Um, these are all fairly new things in the past decade that have drastically improved, I think, the women that probably come in front of a doctor and increases their chances of successful treatment and, and a long life. So I, I don't know the study either. But just in terms of what I've been exposed to um, in terms of the improvement of treatment and early detection, I think that would I would imagine that's what that study says. Pat, now, early detection, we all know that that is one of the keys. But there has been this question over the last few years, and there was some confusion caused just a few years ago by when a woman should start getting a regular mammogram. There was some controversy there. Now, I've noticed that you've been saying 40. 
a lot of uh, what you read about uh, breast cancer and early detection says 50 on a regular basis. You're shaking your head Not anymore. There was a little flurry of difficulty, I'm going to say three, four years ago. Um, For quite a while, the recommendations of all of our organizations were starting mammograms, excuse me, at age 40, unless you had a family history or a genetic abnormality. But 40 was the stage. And then a federal agency said, no, maybe not. And um, we disagreed with them, and we continued to say age 40. And um, uh, I worked with the American Cancer Mm -hmm. Society and their medical director on the national level in Atlanta, Georgia, through conversations. And they were very supportive of 40 as well, although they said they only had data substantiating 45 Mm -hmm. at that time. Since then, that federal agency, I won't even tell you the name, it's U.S. Preventive Services Task Force. Um, With a name like that, they shouldn't make any recommendations whatsoever. And uh, they have uh, backed off from that uh, recommendation of doing it later. And so we have continued to recommend uh, mammograms starting at age 40. And uh, the state of Pennsylvania does that as well, and I believe most other organizations do at the present time. What's the downside of doing it other than cost? And there's I know, no cost implications okay, in I'm Pennsylvania. Saying, yeah. Well, but there's someone's paying for it. But what insurers? Yeah. Mm-hmm. But other than than cost, what's the downside of starting earlier? Other than okay, we mentioned cost. And that it's a, not a very pleasant thing to do. Mm-hmm. One of the things that I had actually read during that time, I remember when that study came out, and it caused a lot of discussion. One of the things I had read that they had um, said, and please, ladies, correct me if I'm wrong, um, but that there was a lot of false positives. And we were actually sort of talking about that while we were waiting to, to come into the room here. Um, and that sometimes that there was a lot of false positives and that that caused then unnecessary stress, which you both were, were talking about as survivors. So I remember the study mentioning that that, that that was part of the reason why they were saying to change the, the age recommendation um, for certain women based on certain factors, but it was the it was the false positives. Yeah, I mean, that enrages me completely yeah. to, to place the idea that stress is something to indicate whether or not you should be tested. I think a woman is very capable of determining what level of stress she can sustain to find out whether she has cancer or not. Um, And that was the same sort of argument that was used against self-breast exams um, at that at that time as well. And you're, you're not supposed to touch yourself or what? <laughs> uh, well, just that it can it can uh, lead to false positives, essentially, that you can then present yourself to the doctor with a lump and that the majority of times, in fact, probably 80% of the times, those lumps proceed to be nothing. However, I have talked to so many women and, and you know, obviously my, my organization focuses on that pre-diagnosed under 40 population. Um, I just think that self-awareness should never be something that is discouraged in any way, shape, or form, not just about breast cancer, mm-hmm. but to, to go public with a study that um, basically says to women, you know, this isn't something that's necessary, and oh, by the way, mammograms, maybe or maybe not, um, especially in, in Pennsylvania, if they're free, there is no reason not to go do that. Um, so I, you know, that that period of time was very troubling. Um, it was both with education I mean, and screening. With, people, I won't say like yourselves, but people arguing about, uh, you know, whether it should happen or not, and what was happening then, where you had a lot of confused people out there who who didn't know what to do. Let's take a phone call from Patricia in New Oxford. Patricia, you're on the air. Right. Good morning. Good morning. I just wanted to say I was diagnosed with breast cancer in May, and there was never a lump to be felt. A uh, regular mammogram picked it up, and fortunately it was in a very early stage, but even my primary physician couldn't feel a lump. Mm, so there's not always a lump. Rarely can you feel a lump. I mean, that is, many women find it uh, through a lump. But that's what mammograms are designed to do, mm-hmm. which is to find the smaller uh, microscopic level of cancer and get it before it's lump-like. The idea is to get it before you have a lump. Mm. Can so, I just... Oh, I'm, I'm so sorry. No, I was just going to say one, one point of pride that I love about 
about the American Cancer Society is actually our, our research program. And when I hear a story like Patricia that that it was discovered during a, a routine, you know, a routine mammogram, the American Cancer Society was the organization that funded the grant that discovered the 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 mammogram. And so I just I I'm glad that we're doing this work, um, all of us in different ways and, and in research and in advocating and and encouraging people to get the mammogram because then it's literally saving people's lives like mm-hmm. Patricia. Patricia, were you surprised when uh, you got that diagnosis? I was shocked. Really? Yeah. Yes, because I had had, you know, 30 years of negative mammograms, yes. Mm. No history of breast cancer. It was a total shock. How's your health today? Well, I'm fine. Um, I was fortunate. it, It was stage one, and I did need chemo, but I went through radiation. So as far as I know, I'm fine. I get another mammogram in December, and we'll take it from there. Well, best wishes to you. Well, thank you. Thank you very much. I'm glad Patricia called in because when we hear those those stories, it lets people know that, you know, I very early on, I want, one thing I wanted to point out that uh, we're talking about Breast Cancer Awareness Month, but maybe there should be an S on the end, plural, because there are many kinds of breast cancers. And so just point that out, that not all these things are uh, are mutually exclusive or uh, are you know, just one thing happening. Let's talk about some of the risk factors. Danielle, risk factors for uh, breast cancer. You know what? I'm actually going to deter or uh, ask you know, the other ladies to maybe help me on that as they might have might have more information, either Pat or Lee. Mm-hmm. Well, oddly enough, age is a risk factor. <laughs> the older you are, the more likely to be diagnosed. Of course, any uh, familial situation with first-degree relatives um, may indicate that you have genetic predisposition uh, toward breast cancer. Can I stop you right there? Because there's something I would like to point out. I saw a figure that said that uh, uh, if you do have a mother or sister that uh, had breast cancer, had developed breast cancer, that your chances of developing breast cancer double. But at the same time, only 15% of women who have breast cancer have had that first degree. Those numbers are a wide disparity. I don't know the answer to that, but I do know that the vast majority of cancers that are diagnosed have no known genetic uh, cause. And um, there's some interplay between the BRCA1, BRCA2, right. there's some, and there's another PAL-B, there's, but they're a very small percentage we know about them because in those families, cancer just runs rampant. Uh, but there are additional breast. Uh, um, there are additional conditions that uh, make you more susceptible to breast cancer: uh, early first period, uh, late menopause, um, uh, no children, or children at a later date. But they don't have a substantial. It, Influence. They're all put together in what's called the Gale model, and the doctors will, you know, ask you questions and see where you fit on that Gale model. But the vast majority of women, they come, they get diagnosed with breast cancer for no known, no known reason. So, are you are you saying that uh, one risk factor doesn't outweigh another? That uh, there could be a number of risk factors, but there's Some, not one that you could point to and say this is the reason that you have uh, breast cancer. Not in no. every case. BRCA no. one and BRCA two, okay. which are, are but genetic, setting, right? setting that they're genetic. Right. Yeah, those they can test for, and really, there's no substantial evidence that. For instance, I have no idea why I had breast cancer. You know, it's, you know, people say it's because, uh, you know, stress or you're a little overweight or whatever. None of those have been shown conclusively. Uh, That's why we do research. We don't know what causes breast cancer and we don't know a cure for it. And that's why we support research. But for the vast majority of women, they do not fit into any of the risk factors. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that. well, the the BRCA one and two testing is so critical because they'll just continue to be more mutations that b- 
be dis- that are discovered. And while that's a small slice of women, it is a huge step forward for that slice to say, here's the things we can predict and we know will happen if you have this mutation. But as Pat said, for the vast majority of women, there's no family history, uh, over 80 percent, I believe. So, you know, this population that benefits from the genetic testing, is it's it's a big deal. But it, it is for a very small slice of women. And and a lot of times the family history, um, as far as I'm aware, it's really most um, concerning if the woman has been diagnosed at a young age. So, you know, if your mother was diagnosed in her 70s or something like that, it's it's less of a concern than if you have a mother that maybe was diagnosed in her 30s or 40s. Mm-hmm. Um, that can indicate some some other issues where you might want to be earlier screened. But these are these are discussion points to bring up to a doctor to make sure that your situation, if you have family history, is treated uh, responsibly and appropriate to the testing available. BRCA one and two got a lot of attention when uh, Angelique Jolie uh, came out, uh, and you know, and actually, what she did, there was a lot of controversy at the time. I mean, she had a double mastectomy, right? Prophylactically, yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. And uh, there were a lot of people at the time saying, "Okay, maybe she went too far," but she wasn't going to take a chance. How are you tested for BRCA one, BRCA two? genetically, and if you do come back showing that there is potential for breast cancer, what do you do? Uh, Well, it's a blood test. It's pretty simple, but it can be difficult to get it covered by insurance, in in my experience. So that's where the family history comes into play um, to get it covered. Um, And maybe Pat has more information about the legislation for that. But um, but essentially, what those those genes come back, if you have a positive um, test for those mutations, it increases your risk drastically for uh, both breast cancer and other female-related cancers, like I believe it's ovarian. Um, and so your choices, you know, it, it's a lot to process. So you mentioned Angelina Jolie. She right. chose to preventatively remove her breast because she knew that she had these genetic uh, mutations, which might Basically, I think it puts you at 80 percent likelihood of producing breast cancer sometime in your life Um, in terms of the ovarian predisposition. um, You know, for a young woman, that's a big decision because you have to decide if I find out this information and I know I have a predisposition, the BRCA gene, um, am I willing to take my ovaries out um, Mm. before I have kids or can I live with this information until I decide to have kids and then remove them? It's a lot. You know, there's counseling available that can help women through those decision-making points, but it's certainly good information to have so that you can make the best decision for you. Mm-hmm. We'll talk more about breast cancer during Breast Cancer Awareness Month in just a moment. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. Welcome back to Smart Talk. It's Breast Cancer Awareness Month during the month of October. If you have a question or a comment about breast cancer, give us a call. Maybe a story to tell. 1-800-729-7532. Send an email to smarttalk at org. You can leave a question or a comment on WITF's Facebook page. On Twitter, we are at SmartTalkWITF. Again, that's 1-800-729-7532. Our guest today, Lee Hurst, founder and president of the Feel Your Boobies Foundation. Pat Halpin-Murphy, president and founder of the Pennsylvania Breast Cancer Coalition. Danielle Levitan, senior community development manager, MSABC Mega Events, Northeast Region of the American Cancer Society. 1-800-729-7532 is the number to call. Now, we've been talking a lot about uh, what happens when you develop breast cancer or the treatments. I want to talk more about the research in just a moment. But I'm sure a lot of people are wondering, how do you prevent breast cancer? Pat, as you said, uh, it's a, it almost sounds like crapshoot like sometimes that uh, you could live a, a very healthy lifestyle and still develop breast cancer. No known prevention. Really? I wish I wish I had more to say about it, but... Uh... There's really nothing. They've done various studies, and uh, um, there's nothing that you can take to prevent getting breast cancer. But, Danielle, at the same time, the American Cancer Society does recommend some healthy lifestyles that maybe somehow can minimize the risk somewhat. Yes, um, definitely being active, um, taking care of your body physically, um, exercise and healthy living, um, being, and then again, 
being your own advocate, talking to your doctor, um, and uh, being aware of your family history. Um, so it's it's again it's that awareness of your body and your and your family history and the things that are going on in your lifestyle. Almost anything, everything you mentioned there, we should be doing anyway. And it's not just breast cancer, right. but it's probably other cancers and other medical conditions as well. So uh, I think that's just good advice all, all the way around. But, uh, you know, one of the big things that I think is coming out of this program and the conversation with the three of you is that early detection part and that conversation with doctors, that that is so important, Pat. Yes, it absolutely is. And for women in this state who are uninsured, and there are still many of them, Pennsylvania has a program called Healthy Women that will provide uh, free mammograms for women who are uninsured or underinsured. And un uninsured, we understand. Underinsured means, for instance, you may have a huge deductible which makes it impossible. Becoming, you know, it's becoming uh, more that's the trend. Today, yeah. You know, deductibles used to be five hundred dollars, maybe a thousand. Now they're five thousand, ten thousand. So, healthy women program, which is through the Pennsylvania Department of Health, will provide free mammograms uh, for women if they're uninsured or underinsured. And again, if you come to our website, we can get you directly there and or our, our patient advocate will hang in with you on the telephone as you get through that that process and also in Pennsylvania if you're diagnosed with breast cancer and you're uninsured or underinsured there's free treatment so no one has to go untreated there were periods of time when there was no insurance and if you didn't have insurance you just went home and you died. That is no longer true. Pennsylvania and most states provide free treatment for women who are uninsured or underinsured. And I think that's important for your listeners to know because we have found that some women who are uninsured are hesitant to get even a free mammogram because they say, well, what if I find something I don't have insurance? In this state, you have insurance. So whether you're um, insured and covered or uninsured, we've got you covered. And one last thing, if I might mention it, um, I'm sure your listeners are aware that over the last few months, there's been a lot of discussion in Congress about um, the Affordable Care Act, also known as Obamacare. And I just want to mention that breast cancer is a pre-existing condition. And many of those bills, in fact, almost all of them, removed the current federal protections for people with pre-existing conditions. Today, all insurers must cover breast cancer, whether they want to or not. And there were times when they didn't cover cancer. But under existing federal law, people with breast cancer are covered. If any of those bills passed, that federal protection for people with pre-existing conditions would have either evaporated or shifted to the states. Now, I recall when it used to be a state responsibility and they had what are called high-risk pools, which means they put all the people with cancer and other difficult disease, life-threatening diseases, in a, an insurance pool, and they could charge anything they wanted in that to those people. And true, they could possibly get insured, but not at a cost that anyone could possibly afford. I remember one woman who called me before the federal protections for pre-existing conditions went on into effect. And after she was diagnosed for breast cancer, she was dropped from her plan, and to get into this high-risk pool, she had to pay $32,000 a year for insurance, and of course, she couldn't pay it. So I just want to alert your listeners to that question of federal protections for pre-existing conditions. All breast cancer survivors have a pre-existing condition. Let's take some phone calls. Susan is in New Freedom. Susan, you're on the air today. Thank you, Scott. I want to thank ACS for 
the wigs and everything when I had cancer. Um, I want to especially thank Pat, uh, her annual program for survivors and, and the stuff they're doing for research. It's a lot more than pink ribbons, and uh, I did not have the funds to attend the event, and they covered it. Um, but mostly I want to mention about the post-treatment situation for women. Everybody says, oh, it's behind you. It, and actually, after you finish the chemo, the surgery and everything, it's only just begun. You got years of struggling to pay for the anti-hormonal medication and all the horrific side effects that go along with it and the depression of waiting for the other shoe to drop, your eyebrow itches and you think I have eyebrow cancer. <laughs> I mean, it's just it's so an true. ongoing trauma for the rest of your life that you're dealing with with PTSD for many women. Mm. The other thing is the, the pressure to reconstruct and for the most part, the, the plastic surgeons that I consulted did not present all of the possible uh, issues that go along with fat transfer, getting necrotic, uh, things slipping, the fact that your pectoral muscles are not going to work the same way, all of the multiple surgeries and revisions and things like that. I chose to go flat. I didn't want any more surgery, and there was a huge amount of pressure every time I went back to the doctor you know you can always change your mind so that you can look normal I'm normal flat and I have sensation in my chest that I would not have if I had plastic in my chest Susan and I'm glad you... I, only my scars are numb so you know I just want them to comment on that thank you for the call Susan I am glad you called in because you did raise a lot of issues first one Lee I, I saw you nodding your head when Susan said that uh, you're, you never stop thinking about it. Oh, well, that's definitely true. I mean, uh, it gets easier, certainly, with time, but um, it never really goes away. There's always that feeling in the back of your head about the day that you got diagnosed and how that changed everything. So it does, it's an ongoing issue. But, um, I mean, do you, are you worried? Do you worry all the time? Uh, about I don't worry. No, I don't worry all the time. No, I think, you know, I try to take things one day at a time now, and I had to sort of learn how to do that. Um, so it is something that you always think about. I think there's one other thing that she brought up that I always talk to women about when they come to me with a diagnosis is the mental health side of it. Um, it I think it's being talked about more, but I did fine during treatment. You know, it was fight or flight sort of mentality. It was like, well, let's get this done. You know, I continued to run. I continued to walk. But things are not normal for you after you're done. It's like you're released back out into the world to get back to normal, and you realize that things aren't normal. Like, you just went through something very traumatic. Um, and so I didn't get depressed until after my treatment was over, and that's when I really I took three months off of work. Luckily, I could afford to do that. Went to counseling weekly, took Lexapro to sort of manage the anxiety around it because I'm a type A personality, a fixer. And so you get into this cycling mode of like, I can't fix this, but if I do this and I do that, but there isn't really a solution. So it's learning how to live your life in a positive way, knowing that you went through something very dramatic. Danielle, I, I mentioned to you before we even went on the air today, just saw a story yesterday from the American Cancer Society talking about how women's uh, employment situations are impacted. And a lot of times it even has... It, some women may decide to change the, the, the method of treatment uh, because they want to take less time or they can't afford to. But you bring, brought something up that even a logistical thing that many mm -hmm. people don't think about. Um, well, yeah, so it, it sort of goes along with what Susan was saying about um, the free wigs that you received from the American Cancer Society. So one of the things that um, we aim to do is to help if someone's going to get diagnosed, um, that we want to help them through their journey and make it as easy as possible and by removing some of the barriers. And so one of those barriers is getting to treatment. We have a program um, called Road to Recovery, which is um, a transportation program that volunteers will drive cancer patients to and from their cancer-related appointments. And there's uh, not really any restrictions on how far their their you know their treatment is or or I'm sorry where their appointment is and where a volunteer as long as the volunteer is willing to take them and we have some 
amazing, generous volunteers. Uh, I know of one in particular who lives in Millersburg, and she will drive someone down to Johns Hopkins or drive someone down to Philadelphia. Sometimes she'll go and she'll wait the eight hours if somebody has this or however long the appointment is, and she'll do something in fun in Philly while she waits for her her, her friend or her, her patient, um, and then she'll turn around and drive them back home. Um, and so it's it's we've identified that that access to that treatment is one of the biggest barriers. And so if we can remove that by providing that transportation, um, you know, not only does it help the patient, but then we also look at the support system. It, that patient probably cannot drive themselves home from their appointment. And so who's going to drive them home? Is it going to be a caregiver? Is it going to be a spouse? Is it going to be a coworker? Is it going to be some, somebody else is going to have to do that, which then means that person also has to take time from work or adjust their routine. And so, it, you know, it just complicates things even more. Things a lot of people probably don't even think of. Let's go to Laura in Lancaster. Laura, you're on the air. Several years ago, some medical association came out with the idea that once you passed a certain mark, like 75, I don't remember the age, you didn't need mammograms anymore. I would like the lady to comment on that, please. All right. Thank you very much for your call. Pat? That same organization that we spoke about earlier, the United States um, uh, Prevention uh, Task Force, uh, that was part of their recommendations maybe four some years ago that after a certain age, you didn't uh, need to be concerned. You didn't need to get a mammogram. Um, You can still get breast cancer, and uh, many people who develop breast cancer at a later age want to know about it and they want to treat it. You know, our lifespans are expanding. You know, now I think, you know, it's about 92 for women or something like that. So, you know, if you develop a uh, tumor at age 70, maybe you want to know about it because you could be living till 92. and, um, And if you don't treat it, if there's one thing about breast cancer, if you got it and you don't treat it, no good. there's no good outcome. Let's take another call here from Julie in Reversburg. Julie, you're on the air. Yeah, I have actually a, a couple of calls. I don't have the questions. You don't have much time. Uh, I would like to talk about DCIS. I have been treated twice for DCIS, once in each breast. Um, have a family history. My mother died of, of breast cancer. And also... Um, on things like 3D mammograms and enhanced mammography, is there? Um, my experience is that they end up costing a significant amount for the regular mammogram. I mean, my mammograms are covered by my insurance, but the 3D is not. And um, I, I would like to know if you could speak to that. All right, thank you very much. How about we address that one right off the bat? Because you did mention. Okay. I don't know in what category your listener is in, so I'm just going to mention all of them. If you're on Medicare, in other words, you're 65 or over or disabled, then mammograms are free. If you're insured under Pennsylvania law for a screening mammogram, for a screening mammogram, there is to be no cost to the woman. That's embedded in Pennsylvania law. And... Uh, Governor uh, Tom Wolf reiterated that for 3D mammograms in October of 2015. And we have not only that behind us, we have the insurance commission that will look into any insurer covered under Pennsylvania law who is charging for a 3D mammogram. There should be no cost, i.e. free, for a screening mammogram. If you're on Medicaid, the same month that Governor Wolf covered 3D mammograms for women insured under Pennsylvania law, Pennsylvania Medicaid also provided free mammograms for women who have Medicaid. If you're uninsured or underinsured, the Healthy Woman Program in Pennsylvania uh, provides of free mammograms, so I w- screening mammograms. So I would encourage you uh, to call me uh, after this program. Uh, our website and our numbers are going to be listed, and I would love to talk to you further. Our goal is that there should be no woman in Pennsylvania who cannot get access 
uh, to a free mammogram that's covered under PA law. We have a couple of emails and all that I'm not going to have time to get to, but we'll put them on our website, WITF.org. And we had a caller who wanted to mention that uh, his wife uh, died of breast cancer, did not have a lump, but uh, the cancer was in her milk ducts. Uh, in the 90 seconds or so we have left, I want to give the three of you an opportunity during this month. I know you all have activities uh, scheduled. Danielle, what about the Cancer Society? Sure. We're very busy this month, as I mentioned before. Uh, we have our Real Men Wear Pink um, friendly fundraising competition. So we have about 18 um, men from the South Central PA that are uh, fundraising and competing to be the real man. Um, so it's very exciting. They're all, as you are, decked out in pink throughout the month. And um, they're just looking fabulous and looking great and raising good funds. Um, and then we also have our Making Strides Against Breast Cancer Walk happening on City Island on Saturday, October 21st. It's actually our 20th anniversary this year of the walk. So we're very proud and very excited. Um, and we look forward to celebrating with all the people that are going to come out, including um, we really like to honor and recognize uh, probably over 500 cancer survivors. It's not just for breast cancer survivors. Anyone can come and, and be a part of it, but that's coming up. Uh, Pat, we have about a minute left. Yes. Pennsylvania Breast Cancer Coalition just had our annual conference on Friday, had almost a 1,000 people. As one of your um, callers just said, we have scholarships available for any survivor or family member uh, who wants to come and can can would prefer to have a scholarship. And um, on the 17th, uh, Senator Bob Mensch, who got the dense breast legislation through in Pennsylvania, is having a jazzing up the Capitol event for us. And we'd love to have you join us for a fun evening. About 30 seconds. Please. Sure. So the Feel Your Boobies Foundation is in the thick of our college outreach program. Uh, we provided over 200 college health centers with free education kits to use to promote breast health on campuses. And 15 of those schools are hosting a Bras Across Campus event to both um, educate their students as well as raise funds for the foundation. I want to thank all three of you for being with us today. Today's program is part of WITF's Transforming Health. For a deeper look at the changing tide of health care, check out WITF's Transforming Health from policy to personal choices. We're taking a comprehensive look at today's health system online at transforminghealth.org, a partnership of WITF, Penn State Health, and Wellspan Health. Tomorrow, Smart Talk Road Trip from Boobies Brewery in Mount Joy. Smart Talk is produced by WITF as part of our mission to deliver relevant, high-quality programming. Support comes from Capital Blue Cross, which shares WITF's commitment to being a trusted resource in our communities. Capital Blue Cross, live fearless. Smart Talk is also supported by UPMC Pinnacle, committed to reducing hospital-acquired infections and readmission rates. More information on UPMC Pinnacle's achievements in patient safety can be found at upmcpinnacle.com quality. 